As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. It's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball, along with Michael and Phil Hay is here from The Athletic. And straight from Big Sam's press conference, we've gone on uh, on Friday morning this time. Um, we'll react to that in just a minute or two. First, the big announcement. Does somebody want to do a, a trumpet or a fanfare? We don't have one, do we? If you told us, should have brought one. I mean, you, could you not just do one with your mouth? That's all I was asking. There's nothing Michael can't do. And surely the, a Sam Allardyce impression can't be farther in the lane either. So our big announcement is that the Phil Hay show is coming to an end at the end of the season. <gasps> uh, but only in its current guys, don't worry. It's moving over to the square ball because uh, we've been externally producing the show for The Athletic for the last sort of, two and a half years, I think it is, we've been doing this now. The Athletic just moving away from that, from externally produced club shows. But the good news is they're happy for us to carry on doing the show. So big thumbs up. Great bunch of lads. Great bunch of lads. And it means we can finally ask Phil his, his true opinions on all sorts of things. Hibs, for one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to joining the stable. Do your um, legal partners do libel insurance? Uh, I don't think they do, do they? Or do they? Maybe We've explore not that so far. Let's, yeah. let, let's not test that theory. I've always played it very safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, we will be continuing the show over on the Square Ball feed. So have a look at that if you're not yet subscribed. Um, it'll move over to there in a few weeks. And because we're producing it for ourselves now, it means that we can put them all on YouTube so people get to see more of your face as well, Lucky Phil. So then. All episodes on YouTube. So I'll, have to sh- I'll have to start shaving now. <laughs> a, so slim, you. a slim down, Phil, hey, it must be said from this point last year. Yeah. Yeah, but it never takes me long to pad out again. Shirtless by next summer's, season. Summer's coming up. <laughs> so the uh, the final Phil Hay show will happen on this feed after the Spurs game. Then we will take a break, I think, for it. We're thinking at least a week. I think everybody just needs a little bit of time to exhale and... Uh, I mean, it's it, it's not as if there's going to be a quiet week after the end of the season, is there? But well, I think I you might just, be right. I think everybody just needs to draw breath. That was the thing I was about to segue straight into. I was going to say, we won't take long off because it's never quiet at Leeds United, is it? And no matter which way this season goes, it's going to be uh, it's going to be an eventful summer, you feel? Yeah, it will be. There'll be, there'll be plenty happening this summer, more than most, I think. There is so much to be sorted out and so much to be arranged, not least um, head coach. And you would think we're just about into the final week of Sam Allardyce, he was asked today whether, you know, he he was interested at all in the idea of sticking around and and doing this for longer. But he he didn't get into it at all. Not like he got into climate change and other things. It was um yeah, it was like listening to Greta Thunberg part today. Um, <laughs> and um yeah, we're just waiting for him to turn vegan now. What did you make of the press conference overall? Then, uh, Michael, I think you're coming round to um, 
the church of, of Big Sam now, aren't you a little bit? It's, it seems like refreshing that he's, he's talking in in very honest and forthright terms, whereas I think there's been a certain amount of, I don't know, control in the narrative or trying not to say too much across the course of the season. Let me take, for example, the comments on Jorginho Ruta, possibly worth mentioning those from the jump off here, where he's just basically said, yeah, look, he's for next year. Absolutely thrown Victor Alter under a bus, hasn't he, essentially, but <laughs> he's off in a couple of weeks or whatever. He's just gone, he's essentially said, yeah, he ain't ready. I don't know why he spent £35 million on him. Is what he could have said, but he didn't, but he was... It's what he meant, isn't it? And he's, what, what, what were his quotes, Phil? It was to do with um, he, 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 was asked, more. he was asked what, what he thought of Ruta, who obviously has played next to not at all since coming in from Hoffenheim for a, a lot of money, record-breaking fee, which is why he gets asked about so much. And, and he has been in the 21s recently. You and I were both at the game, uh, the playoff final on Monday night, and he played and, and scored in that. And I thought he was okay in the game. Leeds played well. He's comfortably better than Nottingham Forest, but I wouldn't have said he stood out as being phenomenally above everybody else but obviously those appearances kind of beg the question of any chance for a go in the first team but Allardyce's reaction was to say look it's next season for him and as Michael said you know did allude to the fact that he doesn't oh well he hasn't particularly looked ready for this and you know coach after coach not playing him including Allardyce suggests to you that they don't really think he's ready either I mean, Allardyce was asked what, what's your impression been of him as a player and he said, I haven't really seen much of him, which I think clearly he's training and um, Allardyce sort of, sort of made it sound as if that was, I haven't seen him in many games, so what conclusions can I draw? But I think if in training he'd seen Ruta looking extremely impressive and very usable, then he would be minded to, to do that. But he was of the opinion that it will have to be a next, you know, next season job with Ruta I made the point, I think this is probably most telling from it all, that it's not just a matter of ability in this league. It, it isn't, it's about psychology, it's about physique, it's about the full package that lets you be a very good Premier League player. And I think you didn't have to work too hard to read between the lines, but reading between them today, I think what Allardyce was saying was he's, he's not there yet. What did you make of his performance in the 21s? My takeaway from it was that he's got buckets of natural ability, although it's not quite come together for him yeah like he got caught in possession a couple of times trying to do turns and things like that so you could see what he was trying to do didn't quite manage to execute it but there's clearly you know it's clearly levels above that level of, of football yeah I mean Leeds were across the board against Forest. it was a real mismatch and I don't know about you but it felt from the early minutes like it was going to end up 3-0, 4-0, 5-0 it didn't seem as if Forrest were, were in it to any great extent and it makes you think and draws the conclusion that Leeds have recruited pretty well at under-21 level to compete in that league. You always find yourself asking the question, how many of these players are actually going to bounce from the 21s into the first team? Because that that is what will pass judgment ultimately on the players that they've signed. So Sonny Perkins, Matteo Joseph, JB, for example, who the two of them are off to um, the under-20 World Cup now with England, look like good, talented prospects, absolutely. But are if Leeds stay up, are they going to develop to Premier League standard if Leeds go down are they going to be good enough for the, the championship that's what you you need to know I think with Ruta you can probably see slightly in his body language the impact of the fact that it hasn't worked so far for him at Leeds and actually it hasn't even remotely worked he's hardly been involved and he's he's hardly figured it I, hasn't even started has no it? it hasn't and and I'm like you I can see raw ability there I can see natural talent Having watched what we watched of him at Hoffenheim before he signed, there was no doubt that he was doing very well in the Bundesliga and, and was looking like a worthwhile investment or whether or not he's going to prove to be a worthwhile investment at that level, we'll see over time. But I think 
the only conclusion you can draw from the under-21s game is that nothing in that performance made you think he has to start at West Ham. He is a player who's going to dig them out of this in the last couple of games. And it's not to say that he might not appear at some point and might not come up with something, but I think Allardyce is old enough and savvy enough to realise that he needs to he needs to nail his colours to different masts. In terms of what Allardyce has said, just going back to one of his other comments in the last week or two, he's mentioned squad size as well, which flies in the face of... Uh, of what Victor Orta said about having a core 18 and then supplementing it with uh, with lads from the 21s. He's, he's, he's veered towards suggesting a 25-man squad would be more necessary. Well, Allardyce has the advantage of being able to upset people and being able to say what he likes without much comeback. It's a four-game contract for him. You would assume that he will be off after next weekend, however it, it figures out. But I'll say this, he, he is saying it like it is, and not just when it comes to individual players like Ruter or recruitment or squad size or anything else but also when it comes to the the situation that they're in in the league right from the start really it wasn't a case of him taking the job and then saying to us look four games to go 12 points so plenty of points to be had big scope to stay up he's pretty much said from the outset this is going to be tight it's going to be difficult and he was clearly really disappointed with hindsight and having watched the game back to have drawn with Newcastle because that was there to be won and we wrote about Allardyce on Thursday. We were looking at what he's done so far. And, and the thing that really jumps out is the tiny number of completed passes that they've had in both games against City and Newcastle. Totally understandable against City because you've seen in the past month them absolutely annihilate Arsenal and, and then Real Madrid. So really, what chance do you have, particularly at the, the Etihad? But again, against Newcastle, you know those two games, lowest figures of completed passes at any stage this season. And it does make you realise that what he's doing and he did say today he wants that to improve but everything is predicated on fine margins low risks look for the the odd chance here and there because if you've not got much of the ball you're not going to get many chances and that I think explains why he was so annoyed about the missed penalty last weekend although he, he you know he spoke well of Bamford and was very defensive of Bamford today but also the penalties that were conceded because when you don't have a lot of chances yourself and you're not likely to score many goals cheap concessions like that do come at a much higher cost. So, you know, we're saying if, if we beat Newcastle, to quote him, said 60, 65% chance of staying up. But it's quite honest um, and pointing out to the players that because they didn't beat Newcastle, they've got to go and beat West Ham. You know, no no beating around the bush, really. He specifically identified those moments, didn't he? The, yeah. The penalty miss and the penalty concessions, people not staying on their feet as he instructed them to. Yeah, and also the handball from Furpo. I, I, I think those moments that make you feel like they're so avoidable and if you do avoid them then it makes it a completely different game and Newcastle were kind of there to be beaten on Saturday it did feel like that I was tweeting halfway through the second half saying it's really hard to know what to do here because while a point against them feels good you're going to have to win somewhere and actually this is set up in a way where it could be won you know if you just make the best of the last half hour and and I guess play on Newcastle a little bit psychologically because they were under pressure too perhaps it was there to, to be done and I think Allardyce felt that as well. And he's probably right to say that had they gone 2-0, that the penalty leads would have would have taken three points from that, which would have made a, a huge difference. So, yeah, you know, fine margins, I think it is what he's he's going to rely on. But I do like the fact that he's just been very open and honest about where they are and saying to the players, look, this is it. You know, this is it. Potential for the table to swing in a way which leaves them no chance on uh, by the end of Sunday's game. There's the potential for it to swing in a way where... And I think this is, in the end, what he's really looking for, where if they beat Tottenham on the last day of the season, nobody else can do anything about it and they'll definitely stay up. It's been interesting to see how him 
coming in and the fact that he's here for a for a short time, how it's kind of sat with everybody. Because he's talking quite frankly, isn't he? And the same things I think a lot of us have seen and said over the course of a season. You wonder how that would translate into, like, say if he was here for a full year and uh, let's say we stay up and he was to stay in the job for a year and we're still not particularly good next season, whether those things would then go on to become grating? Well, possibly. And the scenario changes from one where you, you have a, a head coach who can justifiably say, none of this is my fault. I didn't sign any of these players. I didn't set them up in the way they've been set up. I didn't coach them to do the things that they're doing. And that's impossible to argue with when his contract is for four games. Four games at a ludicrously short period of time to, to make any difference. But you get into next season, September, October, November, the incumbent coach, given that there will be changes over the summer and the players will come in, players will go, squad will, will be altered. Incumbent coach, less and less, has the scope to sit and say, this is down to somebody else. You know, they, they then start answering for what's going on and the team starts to be seen in their image. So it would be totally different. And, and I don't think much of what's gone on in this period has made me think that it would necessarily be a good idea to go any further with this before the, the end of the season. But whatever they do in the summer, they need to make a much better appointment, head coach-wise, than they have with the last two, definitely. Just on the managerial appointment, presumably there are things going on behind the scenes around that for, I guess, options for Premier League and, and Championship. But who is actually doing that and under whose instructions? Because obviously we've got the, the ownership hanging over us. We've not got a director of football. So who's in charge? Well, you still have Kinnear there as chief executive. Even though the ownership structure could change in the summer, you're not talking about different people coming into the boardroom, if that makes sense. Don't get me wrong, there would be additions to the board, there would be new directors appointed, but it would be 49ers Enterprises who were leading that. And, and they have been here since 2018. So you're right, it will be getting done in the background. They will be thinking very closely about head coaches, about directors of football, because they're going to have to get on with that rapidly. And the only people who can be on top of this will be the recruitment staff who are still there, but also your executives like Radrazani, for example, Pragmarati, others, because who else can it be? Victor Arthur is gone. Sam Allardyce, you would think, will be gone um, in a week's time. I mean, one of the things that, that fascinated me was uh, people have seen that Uruguay have appointed Bielsa at last, and that's been on the table for a long, long time. It's become quite clear that over the past fortnight, he became aware of the fact that it was being spoken about round here, that him coming back to Leeds if they were relegated might be a possibility. And while that's kind of, that seems like a sort of um, strange development and potentially a kind of unforeseen route to go down, because I don't think for a long time anybody would, at least of all him, would even expect, have expected that that might have been suggested. It does make you realise that clearly people are starting to think about what they need to do and what needs to be done depending on how this season finishes. And it's not even as if staying up cures everything. Because if they stay up, they still don't have a head coach. They still don't have a director of football. Dan spoke a couple of weeks ago about the possibility that, you know, they switch from the director of football model to, say, having a head of recruitment and a head of football operations, which some clubs do, in which case there's two people that you need. There's a lot to be done. And that's before you even start on which players need to go, who needs to come in. In terms of why Victor Orta wasn't sacked before, which was one of those, it was one of those clamours that you saw frequently on Twitter and uh, forums and so on and so forth. Why is Orta still there? Why is Orta still in the job? Well, now you know the answer because, as Michael's just touched on, it creates a vacuum, doesn't it? If there's nobody there, you go right. Well, who's taking these decisions? Where? What happens now? Who's who's planning for the future? 
Of course it does. And you have to ask as well, and, and this would again be something that if the 49ers, 49ers Enterprises do take control in the summer, you'd like to know the answer to. How much of the forward planning that Orta has done, because he, he always did a lot, you know, he was always planning in advance, he was always thinking ahead for what might might be next. How much of the planning that he's done will remain in place? How many? How much of it will now just be completely disregarded? Because if you've got new staff coming in, new brooms tend to come with new ideas. It does create a vacuum in the way that sacking a head coach can can create a vacuum as well. But sometimes it, it has to be done. I think the answer to why he was here for so long was because the 49ers did actually quite admire Otter and I never got the impression that they were dead set on, on him going immediately, even had they taken over this summer. And clearly, for a long time, he'd been Radrazani's man as well, very close to him. So I don't think it would be, you know, I don't think it'd be stretching it much to think that that was part of it. That was part of the reason why he was protected and, and why he wasn't removed in the periods where there was a lot of clamour for him to go. But what did it ultimately was that he thought Gracia could keep leads up. The board didn't believe that was going to happen. They wanted Allardyce, they wanted a change. And because they were on completely different pages, there was just no option but to go their separate ways. Another of Victor Alta's final acts was Urente's new contract. There are reports that Roma are now going to be sending him back at the end of the season. Well, it hasn't gone particularly well for him at Roma. At least he, it's not as if he's been a, a key player for them. There was an option in the deal for them to take him, uh, which would have been in the region of the money that Leeds have paid to take him to sign him in the first place when, when he came over from Spain. I was told initially that it was an obligation, but it does it sounded subsequently more like an option and you're right from what we're reading in Italy it does sound as if you'll head back and I can't say I'm particularly surprised about that Worth adding that he missed out on their European semi-final against Leverkusen due to uh, an injury but he is he is potentially in a European final before that one comes to an end But at the, at the same time he's a good example of how busy and hectic and hard this summer is going to be because I don't know about you I don't see where Llorente fits at Leeds at all so there's a player that you need to move on you need to find take a four, perhaps there'll be options out there for him, possibly back in the Liga or, or somewhere in Spain. But he's not the only one. You know, there, there'll have to be a fairly ruthless audit of what's gone on this season, what's worked in the dressing room, what hasn't. And it would be very difficult to, it, it would be very difficult at the end of this season to tell yourself that a lot of what's in there has worked or a lot of the players in there have played well. I mean, I'm in the process at the moment of doing player of the year piece, um, as in picking player of the year for a little blitz that we're doing on the Athletic next week almost certainly going to go with Rodrigo I think but it's been hard to decide and there are not a lot of options On our player of the year we're veering towards Dan James at the minute aren't we? Uh, you were telling me earlier this week that he looks like he's going to top score yeah. I think it's only Tyler Adams being injured and out of these final games that has kept Dan James off the top spot so he's <laughs> someone else who'll be coming back next year Well Adams has had a Adams has had a better season than most but a little like Robin Koch it becomes difficult to decide whether he's actually had a good season because of the way it's gone, you know, and, and because of how it's been. And I'm minded to think that Leeds would have been worse off without Adams defensively, as opposed to saying with him in the team, they've not been a particularly good side either. I think the difference with Rodrigo is that he's he's been pretty prolific when you set the goals he scored against the chances he's had. And, you know, he's exceeded his XG. He, the goals have come from him. It's probably actually the first year where he's been able to demonstrate that he can do it in the Premier League. The, the irony of that being that he's had his best year in the season where Leeds have had their worst since um, since promotion. 
So yeah, I, I think he's probably one of the one of the last people who's going to draw criticism for for what's gone on this year. But it's not as if there are people vying for the Player of the Year award and never forget the fact that Leeds didn't actually award one last year. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, in about nine days or so, we'll know exactly where this is heading, Phil, whether we're getting new owners um, or not. Which way do you think the wind's blowing on this? Do you think Radrizani might go regardless of which division we're in? I'm getting an increasing sense that that's probably the way that this one's going to go. Yeah, maybe I, I don't know if, that, if that's fueled by the rumors about Sampdoria, or I don't know, just the sense that you know Ort has gone and is Radrazani minded to be the one to oversee the next cycle of this? Does he want his money, or is it time to cut and run? I don't know. It will come down to money. Money will influence this in a big way, but there are different ways of doing it. He could stay on, obviously, he could retain fifty six percent, stay as chairman and, and majority shareholder. The Forty ers probably much more. Easy, easy process than going to full ownership could move to majority position by taking a, a tranche of, of shares from him. And the impression I always get from the 49ers is that if Leeds stay up, they want to do the buyout. You know, they want to get that done this summer, want to take control. Full ownership, I don't know whether there's any scope for Radrazani to retain like a, a, a teeny tiny stake, but, you know, for, for the 49ers to have full control of the boardroom. But I do get the sense that if Leeds go down, they, they want to be running the club as well. And I think discussions are taking place to that effect. You know, how can this be done? What might happen? The, the we should way- just say there, Phil, that's because we, and we mentioned on the show last week that the deal as it stands at the minute, there is a get-out clause, a cancellation clause if Leeds go down. So you presume, you're hearing whispers that, what, they're back around the table? Well, I th- what they're going to have to do is come up with a separate deal that would allow them to take um, take control in the championship. But... The one thing you have to remember is that that process couldn't afford to drag on for ages because there's going to have to be some clarity pretty quickly about who's in charge this summer and how it's going to be structured because before you know it, the transfer window opens and as we spoke about in part one, you need a head coach, you need a director of football, you need people taking these decisions unequivocally and and fairly quickly in order to, to get on with everything. The link to Sam Dory is interesting because... It's not a secret that Radrazani in the past has spoken about investing in a different football club after Leeds. It's not a secret at all that he's looked at other clubs in Italy. There were links to Genoa. Um, there is some talk that he's he's had a look at Inter Milan, although I don't know what the cost of Inter Milan would be. I would imagine pretty expensive. Uh, Sampdoria, not so much. You wouldn't have thought. So you would you would guess that if he gets the, the sort of deal that he's looking for from 49ers Enterprises, then perhaps that you know, perhaps that could be done and, and perhaps that's an, an option for him. It just feels to me difficult to see what's left for him here. And I know that if over the summer they put together a squad that actually turns out to be really competitive in the championship and can get out of the championship, get promoted automatically or promoted via the playoffs, then some of that dies down for sure. 
But at the same time, these two years have been incredibly difficult and there's not a lot of goodwill out there. It doesn't feel like there is and there'll be even less if Leeds go down. I love dropping the word optics in because um, Succession is coming to uh, to a climax on Yeah, I've not been watching any of it Sky. actually. Is it any good? Very good. It is exceptional. Yes, it is very, very good. Optics. Jed York and the 49ers brass meeting the Sheffield United owners being photographed in Saudi Arabia with them. And then stories then emerge about a, a Silicon Valley funded takeover of Sheffield United. And it's not hard to join the dots there. I mean, I'm not suggesting for a second that it, it is them, but you can join the dots very easily and think, well, that doesn't look great, does it? Have you got anything on that? No. Um, but what you can say and what you can see is that the money coming into the Premier League is getting bigger and bigger and is coming from that sort of direction. And anybody who's buying in is going to need huge amounts of cash to, to make a go of a club like Leeds, um, even more if you're going to try and make a, a go of a club further up the tree, which is why you know the, the bid from Qatar for Man United has been touted as £5.5 billion. Pounds. That, that's how it's going now. I mean, it's, people know, or we've spoken about the kind of structure of 49ers Enterprises, which is the fact that people like Marathi, um, Colin Mida with him, will be the face of it. But behind it, it will be individual investors. And it's not that the individual investors will influence the day-to-day running of the club. You know, that will be down to 49ers Enterprises. They will oversee the project. But in no way is the money coming from San Francisco 49ers. They, they, they're involved, obviously. But as a whole, it's a much bigger group. Could it be then that they're meeting about other business interests? Maybe it's different investors for a different deal? Because they do have a lot of fingers in a lot of pies, don't they? Yeah, I've no idea. I've no idea. Um, I really, really don't know. But they, I mean, they, they do. That's the thing. They, they, it's an investment vehicle that has not been set up in any way just for Legion Aid. You know, it's an investment vehicle that does throw money at other things and, and does pursue venture capital interests and has been on the go for, for quite a while. If it goes ahead as planned, I, I don't see it deviating much from uh, from the model that we understand it to be and, and the people that we understand to be involved. But I've said a few times, this is kind of the stuff that you want to sit down and be able to ask them now. Um, and I know that isn't going to happen until a takeover's done and, and until we, we have a clearer picture of, of what's going on. But there is a heck of a lot to get into with them. I mean, for, as a basic starting point, I think I'd be interested to know what they really make of the last two seasons, what they think has gone wrong specifically, what their part is has been in it and, and what they're going to do differently to make sure that, that things improve. The other side to this is that they couldn't own Sheffield United and they couldn't own Leeds United at the same time. So they're in for 44%. So it seems unlikely to me, just based on logic alone, that they're going to be getting involved in that. It, the, could be, the, it, should, it should be something entirely separate. The, there's, no, um, there's no indication at all from them that they want to exit from Leeds. But obviously, I, I guess... At some point, you would assume that this has to tip over to majority ownership. Otherwise, as I've said before, what is the point? Yeah. You know, like that that must be the the end game for them. And you would like to think that in these circumstances, if they stay up, obviously they they have the scope to to buy out leads, no no problem. And the money seems to be there as well. If they go down, you would like to think that they would be able to sell to Radrazani an idea or a you know a proposal that works for everybody, works for them to be able to say to him, look, you know, you've been here since two thousand and seventeen. You've had six years as either outright owner or majority shareholder. Perhaps it's time, um, and I think it definitely is time. You know, I don't think anybody would would disagree with that. But I'm not naive enough to ignore the fact that if they went down and had parachute payments and sold certain players, pulled transfer fees in, that it would be possible for Radrazani to put together a squad that could compete strongly for promotion. 
And obviously in the Premier League, Leeds are worth more money than they are in the EFL. I find pretty much every aspect of takeover talk thoroughly depressing. And quite boring. Well, it's, I don't know, it's just the feeling that no one actually really wants us. No one wants us for us, if you know what I mean. Radrizani essentially doesn't want to leave because I think he's got nothing else to do and he wants his, he wants his money out. The 49ers only want us if they think they can make money from us. And football gives you a platform, let's not forget, as well. It gives you an exposure. Yeah. Relative to the size of the industry, it's mm. huge, isn't it? Yeah. And then and then you you look at other takeover stuff and it's just, you know, five and a half billion from Qatar for this, the Saudi money for this. And you think, God, what a, grubby, what a, a, grubby business, what a horrible business yeah. it all is, really. Years ago, Jonathan Liu did a piece in The Guardian, which was kind of typically punchy in the, the way that his stuff is. He does some great pieces. And he said... You know, the point of the piece was your owner at your club, whoever your owner is, whichever club you support, does not care about you and does not care about your club. That might be pushing it a little bit too far, but I think the point he was trying to make was that very few of these people are invested in the club beyond money. You know, that's that's the thing that is that money and exposure. So you could say ego or just, you know, I guess the the public persona it gives you, that's the attractive nature of it. No. And given that Manchester United have now reached the point where it's bids coming in from Qatar, that's where it's at. That's where it's gone. There's not going to be a reverse gear from that point. And as clubs get more valuable, the people who buy them are going to have to have hideous amounts of money. And who in the world has hideous amounts of money? Not local business people, not not generally club supporters with very, very rare exceptions. I mean, even Jim Radcliffe at Manchester United always laugh about the piece I read about him having a season ticket at Chelsea you know, like, it's just a just a money man you know that's that's what it is and we're still in the position where football clubs as a rule don't make money anyway but yet are worth a fortune well oddly enough football clubs probably could make money if they wanted to make money but I think again the more wealthy your owners um, the more wealthy the regimes who take over your clubs the less they need to care about that you know because they, they can lose a fortune and it makes no difference you know Abramovich used to spend a fortune at Chelsea. Didn't seem to bother him in the slight. Nobody ever seemed to say to him, you know, what about the money? <laughs> you know, what, what about, you know, if, if Dan was to buy, I don't know, I'm trying, if, if you were to go home with a Ferrari yeah. and say to you, and there's a Ferrari garage just next door. Yeah, 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 which I've seen you wandering around actually. I think, <laughs> I invest in. Um, just seeing what I can steal. <laughs> <laughs> and um, say to your wife, so we're 90 grand down. She wouldn't just go, all right. Oh, that's nice. That's <laughs> nice, good. Um, and I, I look at Chelsea squad, the, the players, uh, the really fascinating thing with Chelsea this summer will be who gets moved on given the money that's been spent on them and potentially very recently as well. It just doesn't seem to be a problem and I think that's what makes football lose its marbles slightly more and more as well is that there didn't actually seem to be a right lot of jeopardy in it for a lot of these people because they are, they are so rich. My hope for summer is that no one buys any, anyone off Chelsea. Everyone sits tight. <laughs> When they're desperately touting around Conor Gallagher for three million pounds, people going, nah, we'll wait. We'll wait for him well, until was, you go bust. There was that great line in a piece that we did on Chelsea saying that the players having to sit in the corridors to get changed because there wasn't enough room. It was like the piece <laughs> I did on Romanoff at Hearts. Somebody was telling me, I think it was Stephen Presley, the old captain there, was saying they had to extend the benches into the shower rooms because they had so many players. They couldn't all get sat down when they were, they were getting changed. But I think it, it's sometimes ownership and takeovers it's all a bit dry and it's all a bit anti-football, if you know what I mean. It's anti the passion, emotion of football. But I suppose the thing that you have to remember with the 49ers, with 49ers Enterprises, is that a core part of what they want to do is the redevelopment of Ellen Road. 
And that is so badly needed. You know, that really is so badly needed. It's also an incredibly expensive job. So that alone, I think, is is something to look forward to if it does happen. It's interesting, isn't it, thinking about Marcelo Bielsa. We mentioned him there in part one, taking the Uruguay job. And we had a little chat around this, you and I, Phil, on WhatsApp yesterday that concluded with the point, like, I just said, I think I said to you, we'll never see the likes of him again. What a bloke. And you just said, well, it's great to have had it, though. And that's how I feel about it. Like, mm-hmm. Bielsa transcended all that, all that stuff that we've just been talking about, all the finance and stuff. None of it mattered. Because there was a quote, and this is how our conversation started around it, from his Uruguay press conference. And now... Don't know if this is directly attributable to him, whether the translation's right or what, but I just loved it. And I sent it to you because obviously you're a journalist. Football is for the people and the players. Then there are those in between, coaches, directors, journalists. I think these last three are the worst in football. Scum. We, <laughs> we must try to avoid destroying football. And you, you said back to me, I blame the people and the players. <laughs> <laughs> which, which made me laugh. Um, no, he's... he's- Right, though, isn't it? But, 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 but I described it as a love affair, and what a love affair it was. And anybody who doesn't understand why we love Marcelo Bielsa, that is it in its essence, isn't it? That he transcended all that, the corporate <laughs> stuff, the money stuff. We will have to say that did also win a load of games. Yeah, but that, that was very important. And yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, played great football. Yeah, yeah, when you match up the idealism with what you actually saw on the field, which was, yeah, beautiful football, loads of games won for such a long time. It's hard not to fall in love with that just as an idea. It taps into everything that you used to do as a kid when you kicked around with your mates in the field. Yeah, so journalists and executives, no argument about that. I think he's been self-deprecating by including coaches in there because he, I think, is probably the best example of what a coach can do to a team and what a coach can give to supporters and to, to City, like Leeds as well. And, you know, Guardiola falls into that category also. There's no way you can look at Guardiola and say he's kind of damaging football. You know, he's... He, yeah, he's yeah, like Manchester City are a totally different discussion. But tactically, what he does, it, it changes the game. And, and I think it bold fraud, changes, Phil. A bold changes fraud. it for the better. Me, me, <laughs> me or you. Him? Me or you. Yeah. <laughs> All three of us. <laughs> um, but it is the case, I think, that with somebody like Bielsa, you're lucky to have had it. I mean, we he, he's just he's a fascinating guy to write about always. Like, we've done a piece this week on how the deal was done for him to go to Uruguay, but also a piece on past international jobs that he's had. So I was tasked with speaking to somebody about Chile. So I got in touch with a guy called um, Harold Main Nichols, who was the head of the FA in Chile and the guy who appointed Bielsa back in 2007. Said to him, you know, I'd like to speak to you about this, that and the other. I'm more than happy to, to do it. And straight away, as soon as you get into the stories, it's like there it all is again. So Bielsa saying to him, they told him there's no money for the, the training centre in Chile and Santiago. You know, there's no way of upgrading this. So even though you would like it to be the best of the best or whatever else, we, we don't really have the cash. Bielsa says, that's fine. But in that case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do lectures and seminars across the country in Chile. And if people pay for them, all the money we get from it won't come to me. I'll spend it on the training centre. <laughs> so Harold Mainico says, yeah, absolutely fine. But then Bielsa says to him, the only thing is you need to set up a separate bank account for it because it's not going to the Chile FA. You know, it's got to go to this one bank account so that, I don't think he said this, but so that basically nobody can spend it on jollies and frivolities. You know, it's got yeah, to yeah. be there so that if I want new facilities, something changed, construction work done, I know how much money there is and, and we can spend it. So they did that and they and they set that up and, and they made some pretty significant improvements to that training centre because... He did, the con to me Nichols. I mean, Chile FA had no involvement in setting any of it up or anything like that. You know, they just left him to get on with it. But he said he did about 100 over three years, you know, and, and raised money from from all this. But the best story by Miles was 
Mainly was getting a, a phone call about seven o'clock in the morning as he was driving his kids to school and Bielsa said to him, I need to speak to you, I need to see you. I said, well, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll come and see you at the training ground. When are you going to be there? Well, I'll, you know, I'll be there in an hour just dropping the kids off, you know, won't be long. And Main Nichols said that the day before, you'd sometimes get in Santiago, 24 hours of rain. And what happens at the end of it is that the next day it's crystal clear and everything, you know, all the clouds fade away and you're left with this beautiful view of the Andes, the mountains. So he got to the training ground and he said back in those days, you'd always have to, as like the head of the Chile FA, you always had to be in a suit and tie, smart shoes. But he also says to him, should we go for a walk? Yeah, why not? So he takes him and they start walking around the pitch and he says, this pitch has been rained on for 24 hours. Spells is in his tennis gear, but I'm in this smart suit and shoes are just getting absolutely caked in mud. And we get to the final corner of the pitch and he says to me, do you mind if I live at the training ground? Main Nichols says to him, no, it's totally up to you, but it's not like we need to save money. You know, we can put you up in the city. There's nothing around here. So there's no like cinemas, no shopping centre, whatever else. And Bielsa said to him, yeah, but the thing is, I couldn't live myself if every morning I wasn't able to have a view of those mountains every time I get up and, and get out of my room. So he did. He lived at the training ground for three years and Main Nichols said the room was tiny. There was nothing in it. It was a tiny closet. There was a bed. It was like room for a, a small TV. And more to the point that from six o'clock onwards after, you know, everybody cleared out, you had a little bit like Thorpe Arch. You had this kind of 20,000 square metre complex that was pitch black and there's nobody there. You know, and, and he just, just day after day after day, that's where he was and, and that's what he did. And I, I think beyond anything else, just built a fantastic team that they loved in Chile and they still love. And it, I think um, he was saying to me that the first game, Bielsa's first official game outside of friendlies, I think is against Chile, Chile-Uruguay, which would be quite an occasion. So let's go on square ball expenses once I switch over to your feed. <laughs> And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To the London Stadium at the weekend, Phil, the penultimate game, the penultimate fixture of the season and one that's going to shape a lot of what uh, happens over the next 12 months, you feel? Yes, I, I was just thinking there, we never really got into Bamford, did we? Who, incidentally, I thought it sounded like Allardyce will 100% play um, at West Ham or, or into why I called him Greta Thunberg earlier. But he was he, he was having a dig at the abuse that had been aimed at Bamford and also the, the kind of threats that had either been made or the threats that, that Bamford had been feeling and Allardyce was just talking about how social media was taking over the world and it was a bit of a malign influence and then got on to talking about AI um, and the impact that's having on jobs and climate change and everything else which something of a unexpected turn at nine o'clock on Friday morning but he he was he was and I think has been this week very supportive of Bamford and I, I totally expect him to be in the starting lineup. I was just saying you know that this is 
these are the circumstances where you have what all you can do in response to this is to try and score goals that matter on the day and and make a point that way. But the the really intriguing thing with this is going to be what difference has West Ham's European game last night made to this, to how they're feeling, how much they've got in their legs, to how well they play on Sunday, to how much it, it matters to them. Have they got Sunday. much in their, in their fists as well after the old uh, fisticuffs? It was a bit tasty, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, I think those West Ham players should have a worldwide ban from football. For, for the, the week. Next, for the week. Just, <laughs> well, just to cool off. They shouldn't be getting involved in that there, stuff. There was part of me thinking, well, let's hope the Dutch authorities act swiftly and decisively and detain them for at least 72 hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and Moyes placed the under-14s, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, he made a lot of changes um, after the, the first leg, Moyes, against Brentford. They were really poor there, lost 2-0. And I think I think he used the phrase goose afterwards. He was not trying to pretend that they'd, they'd been remotely in that game. They're, they're basically safe, aren't they? Um, they're, they're not going to go, you wouldn't have thought. So he has the potential to um, to switch things up. He's going to have to. There'll be certain players whose legs he has to rest. I would assume that he will start Declan Rice because this does start to feel like it's going to be Rice's last game at home for, for West Ham. It's not as if the European final is looming on Tuesday. They can afford to draw breath a little bit now. But I, I asked Allardyce whether or not it was a bit simplistic to to look at these two games and say... You know, West Ham have Europe to to think about. Tottenham just seem to have checked out a little bit um, from this season. Does that make it a bigger opportunity? And and his his answer was to say, basically, look, forget about Tottenham. If we don't go and play well at West Ham, it's probably not going to matter. And he's very clear in saying that they need to win at West Ham. Uh, I think he's right. And that's a bloke who obviously he knows the game as well, doesn't he? he he's got experience of, of that. I guess that after the Lord Mayor's parade type feeling that can sometimes, you know, not in a way that's going to kind of dominate everything, but if you lose that sort of 5%, maybe 10%, it can be enough to let the other team win, can it? Especially in the Premier League, which is dictated by such fine margins. If they're just not quite at the races or it's just not quite as exciting or there's a sense that it's not as important or they've got one eye on the final, whatever it might be. Even even take out the fact that they've progressed and they've got the final coming up. Allardyce mentioned the fact that the Thursday to Sunday switch over from Europe back to domestic football is really tough. Yeah, you know, it's really hard mentally, it's really hard physically, however the games have gone and whatever the results have been, it is really demanding. Essentially they'll only get one day of prep, won't they? Yeah, well, you would assume that unless they've flown back late last night, um, they'll be coming back this morning. Most of it will be recovery regeneration sessions, um, to get themselves ready for for the weekend. Obviously he he will shake the team up, so there'll be some fresh players coming in. It's not as if it's going to be the same eleven that was playing AZ Altma. But I guess the, the straw clutcher in you likes to think that it's going to have an influence on the game on Sunday. And I, I saw a feel with both of these games. And he said this, you know, he said, we need to get stuck into West Ham early. We need to get stuck into them straight away to see if there is a bit of a hangover. And I think the hope is that with these games, if Leeds play in a really intense style, it's going to ask of Spurs and West Ham whether they really fancy 90 minutes of that. And you hope the answer is no. Yeah, with one eye on Declan Rice potentially leaving, then Phil, you hope that, that maybe that takes over as well. That's their narrative for the day. There's a bit of a distraction. Yeah. Allardyce did say towards the end, we were talking about Rice saying he hoped um, David Moyes might give them an extra night in Amsterdam um, after the, the result last I, I night. I hope he has um, done. Well, that's what Allardyce said. But then he then he said, you know, maybe it would help. You know, maybe if he appears in a bit of, bit of relaxation at this stage of the season, maybe they'll they'll play better. I think there probably is part of Allardyce that's that suspects that if they if they go at West Ham hard, 
they might actually find that West Ham really do feel the pace from this week. But at the same time, again, going back to his experience of the game, he was trying to say at certain points, you shouldn't just presume that that's going to be the case. You know, you shouldn't just assume that that West Ham are not going to bother because they're in the European final and, and what does it matter? They still have good players. They still have good players. And I think their season has been affected by their schedule, without a doubt. But they they always felt like they would be good enough to stay up and, and they have been. Yeah, you get the sense that um, Big Sam's a sort of coach who would say to the dressing room, you've got to go out there and earn it, lads. Yeah, it's what he was saying today. It's what he's been saying right from the start. You know, that no point sitting talking about we need this and we need that. You, you've got to actually do it. And again, to go back to the Newcastle game, I think he was really pissed off about the penalties because it, it was just an easy way back into the game for Newcastle in what otherwise would have been really difficult circumstances for them. And, you know, they, they had a really big win on, over um, Brighton last night. So they are almost there for the Champions League. But you could see, I, I thought it too all, you could see the pressure that was on them because they were absolutely playing for a winning goal. They, they wanted to win that game at Ellen Road because they kind of knew that they probably needed to or that it might be might be good for them if they did. And Allardyce is right. You know, if, if, if Leeds do win that, they're on 33 points rather than 31 and they're in 17th rather than 18th and it totally changes the, the dynamic. And the incentive for Newcastle on Monday night while we continue to clutch at straws is beat Leicester and you guarantee Champions League football. So let's have some of that, please. Yeah, and Eddie Howe will be saying that. Um, he did say after the Leeds game, two home games to come. That's big for us. That's where it's going to be done if it is going to be done. So yes, that would that would help. Left back, no junior furpo. Yeah. Blessing or curse? Well, on the basis of the second half against Newcastle, quite a blessing, I would have said. But, hints of a change of formation, maybe? Yeah, I, and I think that's probably owing to the fact that there isn't really a natural alternative, is there? Um, Sign a left-back. You could play... <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's get that going again. Here we go. For the, the eighth summer running. He, he could play strike there. He could move Verba there, although I, I just don't think he particularly want to do that. Both of whom have given away penalties. Yes. Very um, recently. Jack Harrison, I've always thought, probably has the physique to, to be able to do that job if you want to. But Allardyce talking about them considering a change of formation made you wonder if that might be the way he goes if he maybe does three at the back instead what about Jack Harrison left hand side of a three <laughs> <laughs> why not Millie in the middle tallest, <laughs> tallest player in the squad yeah it, it might well be that, that he goes down that route plays with wing backs yep. um, I, found, I found it interesting the fact that you know he's deployed Robin Cock in midfield do you think we'll see that again oh I wouldn't be surprised at yeah. all yeah that he's done that and he's he's very quickly and I know Rock is injured, but quickly identified areas that need to be addressed in terms of maybe upping the aggression and, and physicality and stuff like that. Things that people, it feels like we've been seeing all season, really. It's percentage play, isn't it? So you know, we, we started today talking about Ruta. And part of the reason that you won't see Ruta involved much, if at all, I think, is, as Allardyce says, very raw um, and needs to develop, but just not a safe bet in, in any regard when you desperately need points and you've got two games to go. It's just not somebody who you're going to lean on to any great extent. Maybe Audron is a substitute um, in one or, or both of the games, but I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't get any more minutes between now and the end of the season either. Cock in midfield, definitely, definitely designed to tighten things up, keep it as as compact as, as you like. I mean, in the piece that we wrote yesterday, um, we were looking at the, the passing networks and at the risk of being unkind, they're almost non-existent. You know, there's very little link up between individual players, um, not much in the way of patterns of passing either as I say that you cannot be critical of that at the Etihad because that's how it goes but Newcastle aren't as dominant in, in quite the same way but when he was asked about that today Allardyce 
did say we need to be a bit less frantic. We need to be a bit safer on the ball. We need to where, use where it do you, better. Where do you think that might have come from? Where do I think what might have come from? <laughs> Being frantic on the ball and oh, not right, yeah, careless yeah. in possession. <laughs> yeah. um, Which the, is mad because the, the first thing I thought of when you said that, then I thought that your point you were going to make was, what is this, the 100 to 70 that Jesse Marsh was talking about? So we're frantic on the ball, yet we've got to slow down. I think, he, I think what he was meaning was that they're trying so hard to make it happen and trying so hard to get, get something out of these games that they possibly need to take a little bit of a step back mentally and just be a bit calmer on the ball. Do you think um, that's what Robles was getting at when he calmed the cop down? Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, yeah because the, the cop, um, and for anybody who didn't see this, it was in the first half against Newcastle and there was a kind of surge from the crowd. It wasn't just from the cop, it was from the ground generally, but a surge for him to launch the ball after he caught it and get a, a quick counter-attack going. And I think I'm right in saying that it had gone one all at that point. I think that's right. But even if it hadn't, Newcastle were kind of coming into the game it was starting to feel, you know, it's starting to feel like hard work for Leeds, and it was it's quite you know quite unusual to see that of him just turning around and rather than just saying to the players, you know, cool it down, saying that to the, the supporters behind him, and you know I, I think I think that's probably what Allardyce wanted from him as opposed to Melly was the kind of older head who's able to stand there and say even though I've got thirty six thousand people saying launch the ball, I'm you know cool enough to say no. You identified there something that. Big Sam spoke about, which was ball retention and better use of it. I was surprised. Like my preconceived ideas of the Allardyce style was to, you know, you, you get it, you boot it, long, no risks. And that did happen against Newcastle. As you said, Phil, the, the passing network's basically non-existent so far. But there were moments, there were some moments in that Newcastle game where we did some really nice link-up play. Yeah. Good football on the ground, passing in triangles, that sort of uh, exciting stuff. So well, the, it's, the, it's not beyond their wit and wisdom, is it? The, the opening goal being an example the penalty that Furpo won being an example as well. I mean, that itself, that process, the, the concession of the penalty for the foul on Furpo almost underlines what Allardyce is looking for. Looking at Greenwood, he had all... Well, I'll ask you the question. How many completed passes do you think two. Greenwood had? Yeah, he did I've, have, read the, he I've read the article. Oh, well done. Excellent. Yeah, <laughs> still subscribing. Um, it, two passes um, completed in the whole of those 45 minutes. But one of them was enough to send Furpo in for a, a penalty. And I think... Again, that isn't that what Allardyce is getting at. You know, we're not going to have many moments like that. We're not going to score many goals. We're not going to be laying it on so thick that it's going 4-0, 5-0, 6-0. So in those circumstances, you cannot be handling the ball when it's like a yard above your head and you can't be diving in in the way that, that Verber did. I suspect a few players have had a bit of a bollocking this week would be my, yeah, my reading of it. Something that perhaps that was lacking from the... Uh... The grassy era. And these are the things that we never see. We don't know, do we, what exactly goes on behind closed doors, what the energy's like, what the dynamic's like at the training ground. The peculiar thing is, people have been asking me more and more, you know, if Allardyce had come in after Marsh, would Leeds have stayed up? And you can't deny that the results under Grassi were very good initially and much steadier and that everything seemed to suddenly look orderly where it hadn't before. I wonder, though, if it would be fair to say that with Allardyce, there would have been less chance had it started well or started similarly to Gracia, less chance of it falling away and collapsing in the way that it did, which still kind of baffles me how bad it got and how quickly. You would like to think that Allardyce would have would have been better at holding it together, although you know Gracia did have track record of having kept Watford up a few years earlier, so it's all hypothetical and you'll you'll never know for sure, but... The one takeaway you, you can have at the end of this is that 
asking somebody to rescue you in four games is no strategy at all. And if it works, it works. But you can't pretend that it was um, it was some kind of light bulb moment which um, which got you out of it. It's the ultimate hail mary, isn't it? I mean, go on then. Let's um, let's do what we do best on here, which is set you up to be chucked under the bus, Phil. How do you feel like this game on Sunday is going to go? What's your your general vibe on it? I think they're going to win. He said it now, hasn't he? <laughs> Does that mean we're staying up then? Well, that depends on what goes on elsewhere. I mean, quite honestly, I've no idea what's going to happen over the next week. No. Really, really no idea at all. But I can see an argument for them winning both games because of the teams they're up against and the position those those teams are in. Once you start thinking about it, you, you kind of you know you, it gets complex in your head about what might happen. And there is that side of me that says, well, even if Spurs are not necessarily pulling the leg to any great extent, they do still have players in the team who will score against teams who are not great defensively. And although Allardyce is working on that, Leeds as a whole this season have been less than not great defensively. And West Ham have, have good players as well. So I really think both games are incredibly difficult to call, but I still feel like they're very much in it, put it that way. I feel like the circumstances couldn't be any better for this game. Whether or not that is enough for us to win, yeah, I don't know. That's a really good way of putting it. Well done, Michael. Yeah, and similarly with Spurs as well, who are, you know, the maths will basically preclude them from the Champions League if not already yeah they can't do it can they now so they can't get that I don't think they can even do no they can't even finish fifth they can't finish no, fifth they, so they're, yeah. they're not in the in the running for that I mean the the variable in this as well of course is what goes on in other games elsewhere and that does you know Allardyce said himself you know it, it will be a different situation if we suddenly feel like we actually have to win otherwise we you know we might, we might be done as opposed to we need to win because we need points on the board. There is a difference. And there are circumstances in which Leeds could be pretty much on the brink by closer play on Sunday. So it's going to be one of those weekends. Spurs are interested. I'm just looking at their um, their goal difference. It's only plus six. They've conceded 59 goals, which is by a street the highest in the top half of the division. And only, I think, one, two, three, four, five teams have conceded more. Obviously, we're one of them. But that's a defence you can you can penetrate. Well, you know you know the thing that gets said about performances catching up with you? There was that long period where Tottenham under Conte didn't seem to be very good and seemed to be winging it quite a lot, but somehow always seemed to be top four and you're never quite sure how it was that they were sticking around there. But the, the points just kind of kept coming, except inevitably, because of how they were playing and because it wasn't that great, that, that dried up and they are in seventh at best, they're going to finish sixth and um, Brighton seem to be slowing up slightly but yeah there's there's nothing left for them at all and, and I don't think there'll be anything left for them when they come to Ellen Road Well all we have left now is uh, is blind hope isn't it I was saying on our show this week I've kind of got, I've gone beyond the I've had enough get it all in the bin this all needs to end I've swung back over into excitement now I'm kind of excited to see how this one goes and I don't know if that makes me sick or what but I, that's where I am maybe it's just because I know it's coming to an end in nine days and we can finally all just deal with a bit of certainty and exhale and go, all right, fine. It didn't go the way we wanted or it did go the way we wanted. Good. Football's, it's over. Football's got a horrible way of keeping you in it till the last minute though, hasn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, if the Sheffield Wednesday game last night is a perfect example of it. Good they, God. Everyone went into that going, well, it's over. Whatever. And then you score in the opening minutes and you go, hang on a minute. Oh, I just don't know. If, just we don't get, know if we get the next one. <laughs> we get the next. And then, and then the Peterborough fans have pulled back in and then, oh God. The whole thing's too much. Did you find it? that really stressful? I, do you know what? I was I was going to watch it. My, my son's ill at the moment. He's got tonsillitis. So I was um, I was watching it on my phone until extra time when I got it on. 
and even watching the extra time, I just felt I felt kind of sick, even though it was <laughs> even though I had absolutely no dog in the fight. Couldn't really care less who goes up out of those two. There's, I can see the fun of both Darren Ferguson and Sheffield Wednesday fans being unhappy with it, but yeah, just the just the twists and turns in it, and also getting to the end of it and thinking if that was Leeds. I wouldn't be thinking, oh, our name's on it now. We, now we've been through all this turmoil. I'd be thinking, well, bloody lose at Wembley. It's the way of extracting maximum disappointment from the season. He's 96 points, not go up. Playoffs, go through, go through all of that to then still not do it. It says a lot about the way you think. <laughs> do, do you remember the, the 3-0 draw with Norwich that Leeds had with Monk? It was the day when it was kind of totally do or die for, for the playoffs. And they went 3-0 down in the first half. And you'd probably never seen a team who looked like the wheels had come off more. And you thought, oh, it's, it's, you know, that's it. We'll just put feet up for the rest of the game. And then it finished 3 all, and there was that um, late chance for Roof, I think, that he almost scored for, for 4-3. And you're right, it just dangles you all the time. I think I have probably now made peace with the fact that this is just football, isn't it? This is just how, how it is. Um, <laughs> and somebody, somebody has to get it every season. Yeah, I cannot work out at all how the next week or so is going to go. But I don't know about you, I feel like if if Leeds can get themselves out of the bottom three this weekend, then I think they're in a position to do it. I don't mean they're in a position statistically to do it. I think I think there'd be a pretty good chance of Allardyce getting it done on the last day. But let's see. Dear God, please. Please. That's all we ask. And then we can do it all again next season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> roll, yeah, roll on August, everybody. <laughs> right. We will wrap it up there then. You can sign up to The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Heading down to the London Stadium, Phil, as always. I am. I'm going Sunday morning. Hopefully the trains are all right. I'll see you on there if you're going from York. Yep, enjoy. And uh, we'll do our best to enjoy the game back here as well in uh, in Leeds. And if you're off to the London Stadium, cheer us on. Uh, we'll speak to you on Monday on the Phil Hay Monday Club. That's over on the Square Ball feed where you'll find this show actually uh, moving across in another few weeks' time. We'll speak to you soon. The Phil Hay Show. 